Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back to Tales of Britain and Ireland. Today I've got three more stories from Irish fairy lore for you. Starting off with two shorter ones, and then rounding off with a slightly longer story, which ranks as one of my absolute favourite stories about the fairies. But if you've listened to the podcast for a while and have got a sense of what I like in a story, well, you know that that means it's not going to be everyone's favourite. This is the second of a two-parter, and while each story stands alone, last episode did contain a rather substantial discussion section introducing the topic of Irish fairy lore. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, I'd recommend starting there, But if you're just interested in some stories without any of that context, then you can dive right in here. There are shorter discussion sections after each of the stories today, and at the end I'm going to give a bit of a brief overview of the fantastic mid-20th century work of the Irish Folklore Commission, from which two of this episode's stories were sourced. But overall, it's a shorter discussion section today. So first off I'm going to cover one of the more well-known Irish tales. I do tend to stay away from the more popular stories, but I think it's probably a disservice to Irish fairy lore if I don't throw in at least one tale of what is commonly called in English a leprechaun. Though in this case, the creature in question is known as a lurrequeen, but it's basically the same thing. So, with no further ado, let's kick off with the story of Bridget and the lurrequeen. This is one of those stories that has a definite place. It didn't just happen any old where, infinitely replicable to different locations. No, this happened somewhere in the vicinity of Carberry Castle, on the very west of County Kildare, a stone's throw from the border with County Offaly. Today, the castle is a scenic ruin atop Carberry Hill, dominating the landscape for miles around, with the nearby hilltop graveyard adding a macabre feel to the location while the remains of barrows are an indication of the area's very ancient history. The place has had some form of castle for some 800 years or so, and its inhabitation goes back much further than that. And like many locations in Ireland, Carberry Hill is itself a bursting folklore. It is sometimes called She Necton, the fairy hill of Necton, where Necton, one of the Tuatha de Danann, lives. And according to legends, variously, a giant was buried somewhere nearby with a wealth of treasure, There's a woman who screeches in the castle grounds every year. There's a cat, presumably a large one, which guards yet another treasure. There's a field nearby that should you enter it after dusk you won't be able to leave till the next day. Other legends speak of tunnels from the castle leading to a number of places. And every 20 years, men without heads ride from Carberry Castle atop coal-black horses, making not a sound as they go. And much, much more besides. So... A fairly regular place in the Irish countryside. Bridget was a girl who had been brought up in that area and knew it well, so it was not surprising that she was very well versed in all manner of knowledge of the supernatural world that surrounded her. For in a place as full of it as that, being well acquainted with it was pretty much a requirement for surviving past your teens. Doesn't guarantee it, of course, there's a lot of other factors working against that, but you certainly needed a good amount of knowledge of the supernatural in the bag. 
or that supernatural would get you. And Bridget had it in bucket loads. She was out one fine day getting water from the well when she cast her eyes towards a hawthorn. And beneath it, what did she see in a small, cool nook? But the figure of a tiny little man. Now, Bridget knew well enough, like all listeners to the last episode, that the fairies were not typically small. Really, they aren't. But there was one famous flavour of fairy that broke that rule. The Lurrakeen. And if she had any doubts about the identity of the fairy, they were dispelled when Bridget observed that he was hard at work making a pair of brogues, which was one of the other things that the Lurrakeen was renowned for. Now, there is a mystery here, to my mind. The shoes he was making were lurrequine-sized, and all the lurrequines were shoemakers and cobblers. But all the other fairies were, well, at least if not human-sized, a range of different sizes, not usually small. So who were all these lurrequin making lurrequin-sized shoes for? Surely they'd have a massive surfeit of shoes very quickly if all they did was make shoes. I've been thinking about this for a while now, but anyway, I've got a bit of a theory. Maybe, I think. This is obviously not in the story. But what if they're not all cobblers, but they have to make shoes out in the open for some odd reason? So they're only ever seen by humans making shoes, so we wrongly assume that they're all shoemakers? This is not a great theory, I'll admit, but I do like to really overthink things, so that's what I'm going for. The Lurikins aren't on the way to a shoe event horizon, they've just got a very particular shoemaking ritual. Of course, Bridget, Bridget didn't let such things worry her as they have me. No, for for her, a whole bunch of other important and relevant facts were presenting themselves. For unlike the clear and present danger other fairy sightings brought with them, a lurrequin was an opportunity. For there was one other thing that everyone knew about lurrequins. But it would only work if things were done exactly right. Her years of training, theoretically learned, never having seen use in the field, swung into action. First things first, she didn't take her eyes off the little man. And then she started to gently, slowly creep towards him, quietly setting her pail down to allow her use of both hands. This was proper cheetah stalking its prey in the Serengeti mode. We see camera shots cutting from one angle to another in quick succession cutting between Bridget, oh so carefully taking small steps, eyes locked upon a quarry, and then cutting back to the fairy, who was concentrating hard on his task, boring his holes and, um, jerking his waxed ends, apparently. That's what it says, insert snigger here. Back and forth between the two of them, him dressed in red coat with a three-cornered hat and red breeches, a rather standout sight. He had a mug of beer, smaller than a thimble, a pipe in his mouth, and seemed to be very much in the zone of his work, insensible to the world around him, just singing a tune, which apparently you can do while smoking, and working on his shoes. Closer and closer Bridget got, hardly daring to breathe, until she was right up behind him, and she felt she could creep no closer without alerting him. So she covered the last couple of yards with a burst of speed and a leap, grabbing the shocked little fairy by the back of his jacket and lifting him up, causing his tools and pipes to fall to the ground as he gave a tiny shriek. What? What are you doing? 
cried the unfortunate fairy as he struggled in Bridget's grasp, which redoubled, holding him as though he were in a vice. She stared at him as he turned as best as he was able to face her. Don't look away, don't drop him. Those were the rules. Understandably angry shouts came from the small man. Why are you treating me like this? Get those oversized hands off me. And then when he got a view of her, Bridget, he said, as if in shock. Oh, of all the folk in all the townlands round here, I thought it would be some vulgar ruffian, not a graceful, respectable young lady like yourself. This must be a mistake, Bridget. Why don't you get your hands off of me, set me down, and we'll sit and discuss this like the reasonable people I know we both are. Bridget was not surprised that the fairy knew her name, didn't let that throw her off. She didn't wonder where it had got it from even, for the fairies knew a great many strange and wondrous things, and had a knack for acquiring knowledge not known to humans. She knew that if the fairy wanted a name, it would get it, and unlike fairies in modern lore, it wouldn't have to come up with elaborate tricks to learn it. Don't try to flatter me, Lorikeen. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to engage in any verbal sparring of wits with you. I definitely don't want to be your friend. I want your money. And I want you to tell me where it is right now. This, this was the other thing that everyone knew about Lorikeens. That they had gold hidden somewhere. And if you threatened them enough, they'd give you it. And Bridget had no intention of changing the script on this tale. She was poor, her family were poor, everyone she knew was poor. It was hard and unfair and this was a way out, the only reliable way out she'd ever really heard of. Working your way to the top was not possible then as much as it isn't now. Fairy gold was a practical solution. She continued to stare intently at the little man in her hand. Once she'd got him, she couldn't let him go. She wouldn't screw this up. Well, that's not very friendly, miss, not very nice. And you're meant to be such a good girl. Bridget squeezed. Money? Me? A a simple cobbler? Where would I get that from? I've got a few little bits or whatever I suppose in my pockets. Let me down and I'll turn them out and you can have whatever change I've got, I suppose. Bridget sighed in exasperation. No, as you well know, I want your gold. Everyone knows that Lorikeens have gold. It's what we know about you. Capture a Lorikeen and he'll give you his gold. Pretty basic stuff. Oh, is that what they say, is it? Just pick up a lorikeen and we'll give you gold? Oh, what a rumour that is. Did someone super reliable tell you about this? Tell you this was how you were meant to make money? Passive income, is it? Those people are always very trustworthy. Want to invest in my time, sir, shall I do you, Bridget? Oh, how about I'll sell you a nutrition drink and then you sell it to all your friends? Just a bag of gold up front and I'll let you know my secret. Oh, no, I know. How about you buy this picture of a bored fairy on a boat? I mean, not physically, but I'm thinking of it right now and I can give that thought to you and it'll be yours. It'll be worth so much in a hundred years or so, which is nothing to a fairy. Get your dull fairies on boat pictures right now. Look, we don't have any gold, you stupid girl. It's just what stupid humans say to give themselves hope. You've been leprechauned. The Lurikin said, none of this, of course, it's merely a storytelling technique. But he did protest quite a lot and claim the complete non-existence of his gold. Which, for all I know at this point, could have been correct. Maybe Bridget had been misinformed. But she wasn't having any of it. She was ruthless. Apparently having no moral qualms about suddenly becoming a highway robber. I'm going to keep staring at you until you give me the gold. 
And if you haven't very soon indeed, then I am taking you into the village and then there'll be 30 pairs of eyes on you instead of just my one. Which actually sounds like a very smart idea. One that maybe Bridget should have done anyway. But I think greed maybe won out over sense here. Surely the gold would be better if it was all hers. She could then distribute it to anyone that she wished. The lurikeen shook his head and again started up with a barrage of sweet talk. Oh, I'd expect this off some uncouth, ignorant lad. But you, Bridget, a well-brought-up lass from a good family, who reads, I hear, and gives such a good account of oneself. No, 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 you may as well throw your compliments on the ground for the good they'll do you. I don't want any more of this blarney from you. No tricks or deceptions or any other light conversation or anything else, just gold. You know, I've tried to cancel a phone contract before, and it feels like Bridget was having much the same experience with the Lurikeen as I did with Virgin Mobile. Though of course I wasn't holding Virgin Mobile hostage at the time, but the basic evasive tone of the conversation is still the same. Okay, he said finally. Well, I suppose there might be some gold? Yes. And if there was some gold, I'm not saying there is, but if there was... Go on... Well, it would be buried under Carberry Castle, wouldn't it? Would it? Yeah, you know, the castle, over there. And the Lurikeen pointed. Bridget almost turned her eyes to where she knew the castle was. Just in time, she stopped. Ugh, nice try. Put me down and we can walk there together, said the Lurikeen with a winning smile. Ugh, said Bridget. Let's go. And holding the lorikeen in front of her, she started up the little hillside that led to the castle. It was a while off, up various hills and down various dips between them, and as they walked, they talked. And the lorikeen seemed a little happier now. You've done well, Bridget, you know. Many a lass wouldn't have managed this, but good on you. And you know, if anyone's getting my gold, I don't really mind it being you. Ahead of me, of course. And he even began to sing a little again. Singing which Bridget had to admit was rather good. So much so that she found herself nodding along. She was relaxing a little, beginning to feel happy. Up they came to the top of the hill, beyond which the castle could plainly be seen when the lorikeen stopped his song mid-word and gave a great screech at some incredible volume for such a small creature. Oh, murder! Carberry Castle's on fire! Bridget was shocked out of her whistling and looked up in alarm at the very much not burning castle. And the instant she saw it, she felt the weight of the lorikeen gone from her hand. She looked down to find herself holding just air, which she grasped tightly anyway to no avail. She went back to the Hawthorne just in case, but all his belongings were gone from there. Maybe there wasn't any gold, and Lorikeen had just had to tell her that to get her distracted. Maybe every leprechaun ever captured did the same, and none of them had as much as two pennies to rub together, but they had to pretend they did because of the stories being so common. Because in the end of pretty much all of these stories, no one ever seems to get the gold. That's my theory though, not one that would ever occur to Bridget, nor the people she told her story to, 
who tried digging under the castle in various places, to no success of course. No, Bridget remained sure her whole life that if she hadn't been yet another person to have fallen for a Lurikeen's tricks, that she could have been very wealthy indeed. Instead, she would always remember that day as the day that she almost caught the Kildare Lurikeen. So, very quick discussion section here. This is a fairly typical story of a leprechaun-like fairy, and I say leprechaun-like to encompass all the beings that are basically the same but have slightly different names all across Ireland. Leprechaun itself is an anglicised version of this word. This story in particular was collected by Patrick Kennedy, from whom we also got a story last time, who has one of the better reputations of the mid-19th century collectors and writers of stories in Ireland. He was from Ireland himself and was recognised as having recorded stories fairly accurately, especially compared with some of the other big names in the field. While there are a few different leprechaun stories, there is another very common variant, which is where a person is led to the gold and it's marked by a feature of the landscape, like a stone or a plant. They think, well, quid's in, go off to get something to dig it up with, and when they come back, the marker has been replicated hundreds of times. In either of the two story types, no one gets the gold. No one quite agrees on what any of the words for leprechaun mean, by the way. There are a lot of theories and a lot of sources I read claim other sources are definitely wrong, and I had real trouble discerning the truth to that. Suggestions include that it just means shoemaker, that it's a reference to the Roman festival of Lupercalia, it's a reference to Lou of the Tua de Danon, and simply that it means small person. Stories about leprechauns have clearly existed in folklore for quite some time, but like so many other stories, these were mostly written down in the 19th and 20th centuries. The first mention of something like a leprechaun is in a 14th century myth about a king of Ulster that is probably quite related to the modern creature, however different as well. In that there's multiple of them, they're connected to the sea and aren't cobblers, but they are small and when the king captures some, he gets wishes granted, which certainly echoes the whole holding them hostage for gold thing. Between the 14th and 19th century, the legends clearly developed to give this normally dressed in red cobbler figure. Now, I reckon you'll have a very different idea of a leprechaun in your head that doesn't look exactly like the one that was described in the story. And that's because a particular image of a green clad leprechaun, often with a pot of gold and a rainbow, is probably the most well-known image of a fairy in the whole world and is very strongly connected with Ireland in the popular imagination. This leprechaun image you can bring to mind is something that comes from American Irish communities rather than from Ireland directly itself. The green colour has been connected with Irish nationalism for a good while and that was then combined with the Irish leprechaun and the leprechaun itself then went on to play a big part in the St Patrick's Day celebrations that became an important part of the Irish-American life, particularly in the 20th century, but were not, until relatively recently, large in Ireland. The image of this leprechaun is also, unfortunately, associated with frankly racist depictions of the Irish who suffered discrimination in 19th and 20th century America. This has become less common these days, but there's no doubt that you can still find the figure used in this offensive way. Nevertheless, the depiction of this modern leprechaun has now found a place in modern Ireland. The connection with the leprechaun in Irish America really grew up in the very late 19th century and blossomed in the early 20th, 
and it was revitalised and cemented by Walt Disney in his 1959 film Darby O'Gill and the Little People, a film based on a book published at the turn of the 20th century which had itself formed this figure of the Irish leprechaun in the American imagination. Disney himself actually went to Ireland when developing the film and met with some of the country's top folklore experts. And while he asked for material about other fairies and creatures that appear in the film, he never asked for any leprechaun material, suggesting to me he either thought he didn't need any because he knew everything about leprechauns already, or that he wasn't interested in promoting a more authentic type of leprechaun over the public image already developed. Now without this Irish-American 20th century leprechaun, the fairy would never have achieved the level of fame it has subsequently. Within Ireland itself it wasn't a particularly special fairy, just one amongst a large number of such beings that existed within Irish folklore. There's more that could be said here, but I think I'll leave it at that for the moment. So, without any further ado, let's turn our attention to the next story. And I'm going to stay upfront here, this is a straight up amalgam of two tales. I've welded the back end of one onto the start of another to produce a cut and shut story, but I don't think I've moved wildly away from the original tales by doing this. There are a lot of stories on this subject, the subject of fairy music, and there are many variations of these accounts which can be very brief. So I've done a little bit of work combining two together into a slightly longer narrative which seems marginally more satisfying. Hopefully it works! Let's get into the tale of the Piper's Stone. For this tale we're in County Kerry in the southwest of Ireland, just outside Kilorglan, a short distance from the Atlantic shore on one side and the peaks of Ireland's highest mountain range on the other. It's a remote area today, though popular with the tourists, and it was a remote area back then, whenever this story is set, at some non-specific date. And whenever that was, there were considerably less tourists. It is the kind of rural area you might expect to find tales of the ASG, if you were primed for them to be out in the wild places as many of us are, me included. But truth be told, this is a story that could be set pretty much anywhere in Ireland, as with most tales of the fairies. It's a story of a type that is told all over the country. It's a story about music. The ASG were well known for their musical abilities, for they loved a good tune, and many a person had heard enchanting sounds drifting from the fairy forts in the moonlight, and perhaps even glimpsed the dancing accompanying, played on pipes and fiddle, with harp, fife and drum, wondrous melodies, lively and exciting, strange and haunting, tunes from supernatural musicians who had had centuries to master their craft, perfect it in the way that no human could. Some said the music was dangerous, a trap for unwary and foolish humans. Though few of those who whispered of its danger denied its thrill or its beauty, for indeed the otherworldly excitement it invoked was a large part of the danger in itself. It would make you dance yourself into such a frenzy that you could never escape, or that, having heard it once, you would experience such melancholy if you could never hear it again, and wither away and die, a fatal fairy music junkie. Others simply said that to hear it was a herald misfortune. But perhaps it was all worth it. Sean Diggin was a man who knew his music, really knew his music. Diggin the Piper, they called him. Not amazingly original, but a testament to his skills on the Ilian pipes. He was piping hot, 
as they didn't say. Firstly, because that's terrible, and I regret I said it already. And secondly, because most people spoke Irish, so it wouldn't make any sense. But the point is that he was good. So much so that he made almost all of his living with his musical skills, a rare thing indeed. He'd travel around the southern baronies of the county, often playing in the houses of the rich, and at other times forming a key role in the much rarer celebrations of the poor, but celebrations that they really went all out at. He'd even played the famous annual Puck Fair at Calorglin, where a goat was crowned king, and listener, it still is to this day. And as he went from place to place, he'd be a hub of news and gossip as well, as such people often were. He was a pillar of the community, known across social class boundaries. The person that you wanted to appear at your party. And in a time before anything approaching the celebrity we know of today exists, in the imaginations of the people who knew of him and saw him perform, he occupied a place that was less like the local covers band that plays the dog and duck every Friday, and more into a stadium-filling rock god. People were excited to see him, overly excited in many cases, to hear his wizardry on the pipes. When digging the piper was in town, a good time was guaranteed. And this evening had been a great time. He'd been playing a raffle, a common rural occurrence, an event for much socialising, and it had been a usually wild and fun time, even for those who hadn't won a prize. But it was over now, and though he was well admired, that then didn't bring great riches and so he was walking the several miles home in the darkness. That night the moon was big and bright, and he knew the paths around the district very well indeed, so he'd taken a slight shortcut up Cownavery Hill, a shortcut that he might have avoided on darker nights. He was just coming to the crest of the hill, humming a tune to himself, always working, when he thought he heard music drifting through the air. He stopped, fell silent and listened. His first thought was that somebody must be having a private party of their own in the area. But after a few moments, that idea was dispelled, for the music had an unusual quality that seemed to compel him to dance, and he couldn't identify the type of instruments from which it would come. And this was no tune that he'd ever heard before. And if he hadn't heard it, then no one else in the county had heard it either, and couldn't be here playing it. All of this pointed quite strongly to one other option. He wasn't ignorant of the fairies, of course. Indeed, many tunes in his repertoire were said to have come from them, or as good an imitation as humans could provide of them. But he never encountered them himself, until now, when he was caught out in the open by the fairies. Fear gripped his heart suddenly, and he had an urge to flee. But yet the bewitching beauty of the music forbade him to leave. He needed to hear more of it, and as both man and musician he was unable to resist its pull. He compromised his competing desires. There was a large rock atop the hill that had been there since time immemorial, and Diggin ducked down behind it, in the hope of concealing himself from their eyes. Though the fairies were often perceived to be near omniscient, he pushed that thought to the side and concentrated on the music. He just needed to hear it some more, let it drift in his ears, wash through his whole body, and work its way deep into his very soul, which danced along with it. He sat there, enraptured, overcome, letting the music take him to places he had never been. One man experiencing the heady trip of a lifetime. Away with the fairies, totally wrapped up in the notes he heard. Listeners, please note that the music playing now is not the song that he heard that fateful night. It's not even a tribute. It's music, excellent music, but not fairy music. I've got it on a CC Sharealight license, and the funny thing is that the music he heard that night 
didn't sound anything like this song. And it was while he was sitting behind the rock intensely vibing that the fairy found him. Because he wasn't very well hidden at all. And even had he been to begin with, well, all the dancing and singing and shouting for joy and attempts to accompany on the pipes that he'd been doing, completely unaware of that all, of course, well, that had been more than enough to draw the fairy's attentions to him. A fairy stood before him, though Dickon didn't notice until the being coughed politely. <clears throat> what exactly are you doing? Diggin started. His eyes fell on the fairy ever so close to him and he responded much in the manner of a teenager caught in an unfortunate situation by a parent who feels that closed doors mean nothing to them. Uh, uh, um, oh, just listening to music, the, the beautiful music, it's, it's really good, it's, it's so good. Later on, when Diggin fought back to this moment, he couldn't actually remember what the fairy had looked like, not at all. But it was clearly not pleased. Diggin, that music belongs to our world, understand, not your one. And any human who dares imitate it, not that you could reach its height, but any who dares to try to imitate it, will pay a heavy toll. Dickin let the pipes fall from his hands, the pipes on which he had just been playing the fairy music. He prayed this might go unnoticed. He did that beaming look of innocence that only the obviously guilty and just been caught in the act can do. And for some ineffable reason, the fairy softened its tone ever so slightly. Look, I can tell you are a musician of sorts. He was probably clued into that by the pipes that Diggin had just been playing. You've got the ear, and I know you'll remember these tunes, so I'll cut you a deal. Negotiating from a position where he had absolutely nothing to give, Diggin just nodded dumbly. Oh, you're twisting my arm here, they won't like it back at head office, but I tell you what. For you, because you're such a good piper, you can play these tunes twice more. Just twice, mind you. Please don't play them a third time. Really could do without that, the paperwork and everything. Just twice. Special deal, because I like you, understand? Diggins stammered. Uh, yes, y yes, thank you. Good, good, said the fairy. And he went to leave. But before he did so, he turned round once more. Backlit by the moon and the stars, he suddenly looked very large indeed. Really, though, do not play it a third time. Well I'll be off. Why don't you get yourself home? The music had stopped now and Diggin ran all the remaining miles back to his house. But the music, it never left his head. Round and round it went. He heard it in his sleep and the next day too. But it never got tiresome. No annoying earworm he needed to get rid of. This wasn't a jiggle jiggle it folds. Note to any listeners listening after June 2022, that will make no sense. But it was super relevant at the time. No, this music was just a sweet memory, forever seeming fresh, as he found himself dancing along to it throughout the day. While the image of the fairy disappeared almost instantly, he could still remember very well the creature's words. Twice he would be allowed to play it. He couldn't wait much longer, he needed to do it. There was another raffle just a couple of days later, and with the tune still ringing pleasingly in his ears, 
He played a couple of his usual songs first, which seemed flat and dull by comparison, though they were received as well as ever. And then he felt his fingers move, almost without him willing them, finding the fairy tunes. They were bursting out of him, and after a brief struggle he gave up. The desire to restrain it left him, and he just let the music flow. And yes, compared to the music he heard the other night, it was a pale imitation, a reflection of a shadow of the original. But it was still the most enchanting music he'd ever played. People stopped what they were doing, turned to listen, jaws agape, spellbound at the sound. And then they started to dance, the oldest of them with all the energy of youth, and the youngest with far more than that. He collected more money that night than he had in months beforehand. That raffle was a night to be remembered for many years to come, and while Diggin had been famed before this, now it was on a different level. Word of what had happened spread fast throughout the county, and even beyond, and a number of wise people wondered whether his newest album had come via the Doini Maha. Diggin had never been short on places to work, but now he was on everyone's must-invite list, and he was turning down more offers than he could accept with people even offering to ride him to places further away than he'd ever performed before and pay him a generous sum up front, pretty much unheard of in his line of work. This was all nice, of course, but Diggin was neither greedy nor a fool. He remembered what had been said, and though the fairy tunes were never far away from his mind or fingers, he resisted playing them. And his act was still well received, for he was a top-notch piper, and if anyone had been disappointed that the music wasn't quite as life-changing as they'd been led to believe, they blamed that on the hype merchants of the rumour mill. Once more he'd be able to play it. Just once more. But every day he could hear the tune in his head a little quieter, feel it starting to fade. There were seconds that he wasn't thinking about it, and he worried that his fingers might hesitate a little when it came to picking it out. So when a wedding came up, and not a big fancy wedding, but a wedding of people whom Diggin knew well, family and friends, he set himself to playing the music there while he could still remember it. The last time. Once again he piped out the fairy tunes, and as soon as he began he knew that any worry he'd had that they might go from his mind had been wildly misplaced. He was barely even conscious of playing. The fairy music, even that deteriorated music, seemed to take a hold of him and released itself through him, as if the tune itself was a living being, music playing him to let itself out into the world. And Diggin's friends and family were overwhelmed. The reception was wild and rapturous as before, a crazy outpouring of unrestricted jubilance that made the wedding day a celebration of the couple's love like no other. And all the usual fights and disagreements between relatives and friends were all set aside to those tunes. Bonds were forged between guests that would last a lifetime, and the music would stay assuredly in their heads for many a week, as it did in Diggins. And so he played the tune a second time. And that's the end of the story, right? You ask me. Of course, listener, you're right. The music is played two times, Diggin never plays it again because he remembers the warning, the people who were lucky enough to hear it all had their lives improved by it, 
The music of the other world plays a brief but welcome role in the lives of the people of this corner of County Kerry. Absolutely, that's it. The next story starts in roughly seven minutes time. Why don't you skip ahead and I'll see you there. I'm just going to wait around here for a bit for some reason. And if you're still here, well, this is what happens next. Diggins' reputation after that wedding was once again at stratospheric levels. People knew he could definitely do it now, whatever it was. They knew he was the very best they'd ever heard. No doubt about it. Anyone who'd been fortunate enough to bear witness to his playing could think of little else. They begged him to play like that again and again, but he didn't. He was genuinely done with the whole business. He'd been warned in no uncertain terms by the fairy. If people didn't like him for it, well, he couldn't do much about that. But he knew he was still a damn good piper, even without the fairy music. And he was. But the trouble was that the reputation, the hype, had got a life of its own, and that asked much more of him. Word got around, and it was on everyone's lips. The fair where the piping competition was held came many months later, but the excitement about Diggin had not died down by that point. Diggin always took part, and he did again that year. Expectations were riding very high indeed. And Diggin did passably. All right, good, in fact. No, he did good. But a piper from out of town was there, a man who knew he was good and wasn't shy about letting everyone else know it. Compared to his piping, Diggin seemed somewhat average, and this man strutted around the competition, sure that he would win it. All the people who knew Diggin well were rooting for him. They knew that he should win, they'd heard him play and he was the best. And that day he was definitely in the top two, but there was a big gap. This piper for all his unpleasant personality certainly knew his way around a set of pipes and how to work the tunes. And as the competition went on it seemed more and more certain that Diggin was going to lose. There was disappointment, there was confusion from all his friends who'd seen him play, from all the people who turned up to see Diggin, the famous piper. And of course his opponent had heard all about him, and when he found out that this, this was the famous Diggin, some passable piper, well, he laughed a little as well of course. And as Diggin performed what was to be his final set of the evening, the shouts came out. Come on Diggin, break it out, you can do it Diggin. We believe in you, come on what are you playing at man? Diggin looked around at the faces of friends and family, all willing him on to do better. Disappointment, even anger, was already etched in some of their faces. It has to be said that he'd also had a fair bit to drink that day. Screw it, just once more, once more couldn't matter. He'd win this competition, his reputation would be cemented, and then he'd stop forever. And he launched into the fairy music again. I've described it for you multiple times now, I probably don't need to do once more. I'm rapidly running out of adjectives. You know how it went. The crowd went wild. The other piper was blown away by it, sat dumbfounded at the change in the talent of his opponent, and he would have been angry and miserable if the music wasn't making him feel so damn good. He joined in the dance with the others. It felt great for Sean O'Diggin as well, feeling the music take a hold of him again, he was overjoyed, experiencing a moment of something approaching sheer ecstasy. In that moment he was victorious, he was beloved by all around him, he was as rich a man as any piper could expect to be, and he was content with his lot in life. But most of all, most of all, he was playing this music surrounded by friends, family, a whole community that loved him, 
and it felt oh so very good and right. He closed his eyes, let it take him, and that was the last moment that Diggin the Piper ever experienced. One instant he was playing, the next he was lying dead on the ground, and the screams were starting. He was posthumously awarded the title of winner of the competition for what it was worth. No cause could be given for the ailment that had struck him down. It seemed simply as though all the life had left him at his moment of victory. And people talked of digging the piper for years to come, and the heavy toll that the fairy licensing authority extracted from him when he broke their terms and conditions. And it might seem somewhat anticlimactic, but that's the end of the story. The stone he hid behind is here to this day, and is now known as the Piper Stone in his honour. I don't know whether anyone has heard fairy music there since, though it's very possible. If you're ever in the vicinity, maybe take a listen. Disclaimer, listener, I've not been. I think it might be on private land. I've seen pictures of people there. If it is, and you want to become a famous musician and die young when you accidentally play the fairy music for a third time, then please do get the landowner's permission before doing so. Now, the playing of all fairy music has not had such dire results. Many tunes have come from the fairies. So do remember, if you're ever really enjoying a song on the radio, or in a club, or at a concert, there's always the possibility that any particular good tune, a tune that feels like it's changing your life, that's just too good to be true, well, that tune might well have been taken from the fairies. And I, for one, am very glad that the Venga Boys overheard the fairies playing the Venga Bus one night and have brought that music to us mortals. Okay, quick discussion on that tale. I said at the start of the story that it was really two stories, and the bit that I took from another source was the competition aspect. In the original, he just kind of plays it a third time, and there's no particular reason for doing that, and I felt that didn't work well enough. And the competition crops up in quite a few other accounts, so it seemed legitimate to include it. Both stories came from the Irish National Folklore Collection, which I'll discuss a little bit more at the end of the episode. In that folklore archive, there is another version of a tale specifically referencing why this particular stone is called the Piper Stone. In that version, the unnamed Piper always sits on that stone and plays his music there, because the stone's close to his house. One day, he hears the fairy music. He doesn't get a warning, doesn't meet with the fairies, it just gets into his head, so he goes to his usual stone, gets on top, plays the music, and drops dead. As a naming story, this actually makes way more sense to me. It's better connected to the... Having him play there every night actually connects him more to the stone, whereas it's kind of an incidental detail in the story. I've just told that he hides behind the stone every night. Now, I could talk about some similar legends in Ireland, and there are a few in Scotland where music is learnt from the trows, but I think I've laboured the point now that fairy music is a very common tale across Ireland, with even some mid-20th century musicians claiming that they learnt to play by listening to the fairies. Okay, let's leave the fairy music there and move on to the last of today's stories and the last story of Irish fairy lore for the time being, though I might return to this topic in future. 
Now, obviously, I enjoy all the stories about the fairies that I've told to you and most of the ones I hear. But I'm going to go out on a high here because this is one of my absolute favourites. This is the story of the fairy man. Hope. Finally, young Joseph felt a bit of hope. There was a plan now, an audacious plan, a dangerous plan certainly. But as he talked it through with Tommy the Shiog, the fairy doctor, he was becoming more and more certain. The people of this land were not helpless against the fairies. They cohabited this island with them for centuries. According to many stories, once men had even driven the fairies underground. They did not have to put up with this. They just had to be courageous like their ancestors before them. He'd been brought up to fear the fairies, to be careful around them, to be meek. Never to fight back against them. This was a new way of looking at the world. A way of looking at the world that gave him the opportunity to craft a happy ending to this sad tale. This story starts a few days before, with Joseph's sister, Nora, an older child, 12 or 13, that kind of age, just like Joseph himself. She had gone out cutting turf from the bog near the banks of Loch Gowner. Turf cutting was not an unusual activity. In fact, it was very common, because for many households, the rich peat of the vast boglands provided a perfect fuel, a fuel to do the all-important job of keeping the fire alight. For cooking and for heating. Sometimes it was gathered in vast quantities and sold on across the country, but in other cases it was just collected by families from common areas for their own use. In a land where firewood was rare, it was by far the best way of heating your home. So going out to get some turf was equivalent to going to the corner shop might be today. An everyday activity. Nothing to mention, nothing out of the ordinary. But just like going to the shop today, it is actually a pretty dangerous affair if you don't keep your wits about you. You think I jest, but I don't. Depending on exactly where your corner shop is, but for most people I reckon, it'll be fairly easy to get killed on the way there, as multiple ton boxes roll past you at tremendous speeds that we've somehow got used to thinking of as quite slow. Now all that keeping our wits about us to avoid being killed by said boxes is so internalised that we don't even think about it. Yet in the UK, every day on average, five or so people die on the roads. And you might be thinking, Graham, this is a strange tangent to go off on, and you're beginning to lose the thread a bit here. And I agree, that's fair enough. The point was that Joseph's sister had gone out to collect turf in the bog, a normal activity. But that she hadn't come back. Because, like going to the shops, it could be very dangerous in the bog. Stay away from the bog holes, they had always been told. The cloying wet mud of the bog holes could easily suck you in if you weren't careful. A bog hole is a kind of Irish quicksand that is deceptively firm until you step on it and then find yourself inexorably pulled in. Be careful in the bog, they said, especially when you're alone. When a few hours passed and Nora did not return, her father and mother went out looking for her. And they found her. Face down in a hole, body mostly submerged. 
She'd fallen in, maybe tripped, somehow. She'd fallen in and she'd drowned. Quite horribly. The family of four was now a family of three. The grief of the parents and of young Joseph was terrible. I'm not going to expand on it in any great detail, you can certainly imagine. But they were poor people, and life didn't just stop because of tragedy. And that was why the next night the young boy was out in the same bog, collecting turf himself. The bog was a vast desolate space. There were some small areas of low trees, the banks of the loch were nearby. But otherwise, this was just a huge, flat wetland stretching away to the horizon. And the evening sky was a washed-out grey of unbroken, dull clouds, casting everything in a tired, melancholy light. With the death of his beloved sister the day before, it should go without saying that Joseph was not exactly in his right mind, taking time from collecting the pre-cut turf to break off sobbing before composing himself. And he had just so composed himself, was collecting a strip of turf, putting it into a bag, when he saw movement out of the corner of his eye. His head snapped round, and what he saw sent a panic and a chill racing through his body. He gasped, stumbled backwards despite the dangers of the bog, felt water splashing around him. She was not close, a few hundred metres away or so. But nevertheless, there, unmistakably, was Nora. Nora, whose body he'd seen brought back to his house the night before. For a ghost, she was as solid as anything. He cried out to her, Nora, Nora! But she didn't respond. She seemed to just be looking at him, sadly, not saying anything herself. Part of him wanted to run to her, but another part, keen to danger, keen to the horrors of the supernatural, a part that remembered seeing her body taken out that morning for burial, that part recoiled. Survival instincts kicked in and Joseph fled. He told his parents what he had seen, and credit to them, there was no disbelief or even a thought that he had some kind of hallucination. They were well aware of the strange things that happened in the bog, and they knew what they had to do. They sent for Tommy Nashiog, Tommy the Fairy. Tommy was not actually a fairy, but was what was called a fairy doctor. A fairy doctor was a person, usually a woman, but in this case a man, very knowledgeable about the fairies and their ways, and about other magics too. The only kind of person who might just be able to help. Now calling on Tommy was not a thing that was done lightly, for the man was respected, yes, but feared too. Best left alone unless you really needed him. The source of his powers and knowledge was not entirely known, but with a name like Nashiog, well, some said he had spent time with the fairies himself. The man was kind and helpful, but unnerving to be around. So people tended to avoid him, except at times like this. Fortunately, he lived not too many miles away, so the very next day they sent Joseph off to meet with the fairy man, still shaking from the death of his sister and the subsequent sight of what he took to be her ghost.
Tommy's was an unusual cottage, all bedecked out with strange talismans and curios upon the walls. And when Joseph arrived, he found Tommy expecting him. The old man greeted him with a great seriousness and asked him to relate his woes, which he did, as much as I have done for you here. And then Joseph kind of stood there. He didn't even know what he was asking for from the man, but he just needed somebody to tell him what he should do next. If his sister's soul was restless, well, he wanted something done. Tommy fought on it for a while, and then he bid the young Joseph to wait outside. An hour or so passed, and the cottage was mostly silent. Though just once, Joe thought he heard Tommy talking, as if to somebody. But he couldn't catch the words, and no one else had gone into the cottage. Finally, Tommy emerged. Okay, my lad, listen carefully. You must go back to that bog again once more tonight, the very place you saw her yesterday. But this time, take food and drink with you. It need not be anything special, just the kind of fare that Nora would eat every night. And it must be you alone who goes. Your parents must not come with you, for she has shown herself to you already. And then, when you have presented her with the food, wait. These were more exact instructions than Joseph had been expecting. And then what? Just wait a bit, and if she comes again, your sister, and takes up the food, which I think she will, well, he hesitated, as if unsure whether he should tell the boy this. Well, just listen to her. To her spirit, you mean? Boy, it's possible, likely even, that what you saw was no ghost at all. Joseph was understandably confused. You know of changelings, yes? Joseph nodded, for he did, as I'm sure you do too, gentle listener. Well, this is a bit like that. You know, I'm sure, that amongst the fairy horde are the human dead. The body that was found, you see, is not really your sister's. It, it looked exactly like her. Yes, yes, I know, but a girl like her, drowning in the bog? Possible, but she knew her way around. No, lad, it's much more likely that she was taken by the fairies. And in her place they left a stock, an imitation, a facsimile, something that looks exactly like her body, except the very trained eye, but is not hers. For she is really somewhere else, with the fairies. It's just a theory at the moment, but take the food and we will see. Oh, and one more thing. Do not under any circumstances touch her, and if she offers you food, do not take it. If she does then we are too late. Back, Joseph went to his parents, explained all that the cunning man had said. Nora was buried now. Without digging her up, they couldn't try to check the ferryman's suspicions. Not that they would be able to tell from the body even if they had. And that was an awful thought. What a turbulent maelstrom of emotions this must have stirred up in all three members of the family. A daughter who had died but was now maybe, possibly alive, despite all the evidence of their own eyes but condemned to live with the fairies. What a terrible thing. And maybe she was dead after all. They couldn't let the relief wash over them, for either it was fake and premature, or that she was with the fairies forever. But of course it was difficult to control one's mind in such a way. It wasn't an easy time. The parents desperately wanted to accompany Joseph to the bog to see their daughter again. But of course, that was not allowed. And if they hadn't respected the words of the fairy man so much, they would surely have gone with him. 
but even in these horrendous hours, their faith in his knowledge and warnings bound them strongly. And so, with a great reluctance on his parents' part, Joe ventured into the bog once more alone, bearing food and drink for his missing sister. This time there was no turf collecting to be done. Joseph was firmly on the watch for Nora. He made his way to roughly the spot he'd been the day before, and he set the food down. He backed off a little, and he waited. He was waiting so long he was even beginning to feel a little silly. But just as he was really considering leaving. Not from anywhere, and she didn't blink into existence either. Just all of a sudden, she was there. A sad and pale-looking girl. A girl he had known all his life. She saw the food and she ran over the bog to it. Crossing the distance between him and her at great speed, she took it up and ate ravenously and drank deeply and thirstily from the cup he had left. Then she looked at him. Words came from her mouth and they sounded exactly like her. Joe. Nora. You've come for me. She went to embrace her brother, but he backed off. No, no, I mustn't, I mustn't. And a fear suddenly gripped him. What if this wasn't her? What if it wanted to touch him and would take him? But she didn't pursue, or thankfully just let her arms fall by her sides and looked mournful. It's awful, Joe. They've taken me. They made a thing that looked like me, but it isn't me. I'm me. I'm still here. I've not eaten their food yet, but they want me to stay here forever. I don't want to. I don't want to. They make me serve them all the time. They're trying to make me one of them. Make me forget you. But I won't eat their food. If you bring me food like this, I won't. Let's go, now, said Joe. But Nora replied sadly, I can't, I can't, they won't let me. They'll, they'll have me back. Joe was elated and despairing all at once. So close and yet so far. Is there any way we can get you back then? I don't know, but but every night we go a-riding around the village on great white horses, the whole fairy group, and we pass our farmhouse at midnight, and it feels like I'm closer to you then. They talked a little while longer, tried to joke and make light of it as much as they could, as if this might not be the last time they ever spoke, trying to stave off fear and loneliness. But oh, too soon Nora was called back by the fairies, and she told her brother to flee from the bog. And he did fair running for his life. The next day young Joseph made the trip back to Tommy Nashiogs to tell him everything that he had seen. He told of his sister's words about the fairies and the riding of the horses. And this is about where our story opened, with Joe's hope, determination and elation. Because the fairy man really came through for him that day. After listening carefully to everything the boy said, he did some great magics, consulted a variety of oracles, looked into the smoke of his fire, and eventually he said, I know how to get her back. The plan was simple in its conception. It didn't even require bunches of protective charms, nor applications of magical ointments or the like, as in many tales of encounters with fairies. No, all that had to be done was wait for midnight, when the fairy horses would ride past the house, because the fairies apparently love timing their rides very precisely and always make sure they pass by the house of the victim at 12 on the dot. It's all about the style of it, really. The fairies understood that. 
009 or 1143 wouldn't do it, it had to be midnight. And Joe would lie and wait for her. It would have to be Joe, it couldn't be Tommy or his parents. Why exactly is not stated, but it's clear that he had some special relationship with the fairy abducted girl. When she rides past your house, explained Tommy, you have to jump up and grab her. She won't be able to slow the horse down for you, but if you time it right, wrap your arms around her and pull her from the horse, then she'll be free from the fairies. Okay, great, and won't the fairies just come for us both? asked Joe reasonably. No, no, said Tommy, hand-waving it away. For magical reasons. I know, the fairies' ways are hard to fathom and I don't have time to go into it now. Joseph repeated it to him back. So I pull her from her horse and then I get my sister back and show those fairies not to mess with us? Show them that this is a human land and they can't just take who they want and trick us? I can do that. She's coming back. Oh, we're gonna show these she who we are, Tommy. You're amazing. And hey, if I miss her tonight, well, I'll try again tomorrow. I'm gonna get her back. Yes, said Tommy, slowly and not at all reassuringly. And that Padme-Anakin reaction meme plays out here with the line, I'll try again tomorrow, yes? Well, just one teensy-weensy, very small but important little detail, though. You see, if you make the attempt and you don't manage to drag her off her horse, then you will both die. For real. Not abducted by the fairies. What? Joseph deflated momentarily. Yes, I'm sorry that it's like this, but the fairies don't make things easy. But the young lad was proper protagonist material, and he bounced right back. Well then, I'll just have to get her first time, won't I? I'll get her tonight. You'll see. I'm going to get my sister back. Good lad. It'll have to be tonight as well, because though the food will have kept her sated for today, your sister will soon have to eat the fairy food, and then she won't appear to you again. Do it tonight, and you'll be reunited as a family. I believe in you, Joseph. You can do this. Get Nora back. And with that encouragement ringing in his ears, he returned to his father and mother to tell them the good news. That the fairy man had a solution for them. That he would do it. That he would become a hero of the type he'd heard stories told about on many a winter's evening. That he'd get his family back together. The fairies couldn't mess with them. The fear that had gripped his heart when he heard about the risk had been a temporary one, and it was gone now, never to reappear. And he explained everything to his parents, just as Tommy had explained it to him, looked up at their faces for approval. Up until this point in the story, the parents have been background figures without agency or voice. It's Joseph who's led the action and Tommy the ferryman who has advised him. And so we might rightfully expect this to continue for Tommy to complete his hero's journey. Either rescue his sister or doom them both in the process of trying. A heroic sacrifice. It's a particularly youthful choice that, isn't it? A roll of the dice to either win big or lose it all. And it's the kind of decision that heroes are made of. We see it all the time. And nine times out of ten, the heroes overcome those impossible odds, despite them being impossible. Doctor Strange saw 14,605,000 universes, and in only one they succeeded. But that was the one in the story. That's how stories work. This, this was just grabbing someone off a horse. It was risky, yes. 
but of course it was a risk worth taking to save a life. Obviously it was worth doing. But to the mother and father listening to this, well, this wasn't a story. I know, a ridiculous thing to say when you're telling a story, but to them it wasn't. They were listening to a proposal of how their son, their son who they knew had never grabbed anyone from a horse before, had hardly seen a horse in fact, had to complete this perfectly at midnight that night, or both of their children would die. And after Joseph had explained it all, they excused themselves. And they talked about it, talked it over and over for a long time. And amongst the tears, they reached a decision. A decision that a youthful protagonist never could. They went to Joseph, and in the kindest way possible, they told him, No. What? We're not letting you do it. What? Don't you understand? She's not dead. He repeated his point. She's with the fairy. She hates it. She wants to come back. I can rescue her. This isn't easy for us, son. Please, it's not easy. It's the hardest decision we've ever made. But we're not losing both of you. The risk is too big. No, no. How, how can you say that? You, you can't make me. I'll do it. They'd expected this, of course. We can. We're going to leave this house tonight. Go somewhere away for a few days. No, 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 she'll stay with them forever. And when we return to this house, we won't speak of this again for a long while. No, that's not right, you can't. But they could, and they did. But they had made their decision, heart-wrenching as it was, and away they went. And however much their son pleaded and threatened and begged, they did not give in. And they returned later, after a time when all hope was lost. As soon as he could, a desperate Joseph went to the bog with food, tried to find Nora, but she did not appear to him again. I don't know if he ever forgave his parents, ever learned to understand their decision, ever agreed with it, because while I've characterised this as a decision between youth and experience, it is not as simple put as that. This was no black and white issue. Perhaps Joseph lived his whole life regretting not waiting that evening. But however much he might despise them, his parents still had a living son. The fake fairy body remained in the ground, and it was only after many long years of life that Joseph joined it. What became of the real Nora is not known. Abandoned by her brother for reasons she'd never understand, forced to live with the fairies. Well, that's a life that some have described as a very heaven, and others as akin to an eternity of servitude. But it's quite possible that given the lifespan of fairies and the strange ways that time works, she remains with them to this very day hoping that eventually her brother will come to save her, never understanding the decision her parents made. What a story, eh? Cutting the action off mid-flow there. And I love it for that. Just 
totally screwing with the expected narrative there. That is very much my jam when it comes to stories, and I'm very sorry if you found this anticlimactic. I actually first found this story in a book where there's an entirely new ending tacked on, where the father and son team up and save the daughter from the fairies. So when I went to look up this original in the National Folklore Collection and found it, a version which I've told pretty much straight, I was so much more pleased with its unusual but understandable resolution, and so had to tell you this rather than pretending that everything's always heroics. Now, there are other stories of fairy doctors and people getting abducted by the fairies where they do succeed in getting the person back. Sometimes there's a fake body, sometimes not. And a couple of versions of these stories has the person opt to stay with the fairies because they like it. So that's probably the rarer type. Fairy doctors absolutely were real people, by the way, in addition to how they appear in these stories. They would cure illnesses in people and animals, tell fortunes and protect people from fairies, witches and demons. Some of these people even achieved countrywide fame, though most were local figures. They are an Irish version of the local magic users, sometimes often called cunning folk, that we've met in a number of stories now. The good guys, more or less. These were important people for many communities in the past when dealing with all kinds of life's difficulties, though in Ireland they were tied more to the fairies than elsewhere. This story is of course also notable for featuring the changeling dead concept. Last episode we had a story about a genuinely dead person who became a fairy, but here's an idea that shows a completely different way in which supposedly dead people can end up in the fairy horde. This crops up in quite a few places, not just in Ireland but in other Celtic countries folklore as well, and a couple of times in some English accounts. When it comes to ideas of there being dead people amongst the fairies, I find this explanation more compatible with most of our ideas of fairies than stories where human souls become the fairies. There's still in this story a very clear distinction between humans and fairies as two different categories, and no implication that all the fairies are just the human dead. I do also like it as a story that reveals the real malevolence of the fairies, that shows how tricksy they are, and it fits so well with changing ideas that we're all much more familiar with, and then extends them almost logically into another area. Now I'm not generally a fan of theories of the origin of stories that root them in a single real-world parallel or real-world moral. I don't generally think they track very well, there's often a whole load of influences make a story. But there's no doubt in my mind that this kind of story can be used to say that people who have died prematurely, for whatever reason, are still living somewhere else. Which, while not ideal, could be a comforting thought in some ways. Very rarely do the people in these stories come back. And I think if we consider these to be, well, real-life accounts, there might be a very good reason for that. I do really hope you enjoyed this story as much as I did, despite the ending. Now, this story, like the ones about the fairy music, crops up in the National Folklore Collection. The National Folklore Collection is available online and is following on from the work of the Folklore Commission. And now seems about the right time to talk about this. The story of the Folklore Commission and its work is something with no parallel anywhere else in Britain and Ireland, and it has given us just such a rich wealth of stories, beliefs, folklore, and everything associated with it. At the turn of the 20th century, leading figures in Irish nationalist circles and those concerned with preserving and revitalising the Irish language had a very deep interest in folklore. Following Irish independence, this interest remained strong and a leading figure 
emerged in the form of James DeLarge, a lecturer at University College Dublin. He established a folklore journal, Bealegis, and from then on went to become head of the Irish Folklore Institute, which in 1935 was succeeded by the Irish Folklore Commission. DeLarge was a hugely knowledgeable, driving force of a man who kind of embodies a desire to really record accurately all the old traditions that were dying out in Ireland. He had studied under Douglas Hyde, who I mentioned last episode, was an important figure in Irish language revival and folklore. While obviously lots of other people were involved, consensus does seem to be that DeLarge was critical in setting up the Irish Folklore Commission. And the founding of the Irish Folklore Commission has been described as, quote, the most important event in the field of folklore in the 20th century, unquote. And while I don't have a global view on that, it certainly rings true. The Folklore Commission was funded by the government, who were on board with Delargy's ambition of preserving as much folklore as possible, folklore here being a very broad topic. Now, this was all taking place at a much later time period than most folklore collection I've mentioned on the podcast so far. Normally I'm talking about 19th century figures, and usually just a couple of people. This is at a time, therefore, when the methodology of folklore collection was very much more developed and the Commission brought a relatively huge amount of focused resources to the collection of folklore, utilising techniques that had been developed by previous folklore collectors, consulting widely on this, including getting a lot of advice from Swedish collectors, and then going on to produce something that essentially became the gold standard for folklore collection and applying it to Ireland. The Commission basically worked by providing tools and methodology for a number of employed collectors and a number of volunteers, to go out and find stories and other types of folklore from people all across Ireland. And out they went, interviewing a huge range of different people and collecting an astonishing amount of material over many years. Recordings of interviews were also made, along with recordings of folk songs and music, as well as photograph and even videos. One of the Commission's most notable projects was having 50,000 schoolchildren write down folklore that they knew, having collected it from their parents, grandparents and anyone else they could. This exercise, conducted between 1937 and 1939, this was conducted between 1937 and 1939 and produced a wealth of material on all kinds of topics. And all of this wasn't just left to rot somewhere, but was classified, analysed and published in various different formats. To give you a sense of the scale of what was achieved here, I'm going to read some stats from the website here. The collection today consists of circa 2 million manuscript pages, circa half a million index cards, 12,000 hours of sound recordings, 80,000 photographs, 1,000 hours of video material. This volume of material is quite unlike anything that exists for England, Scotland or Wales. Just looking at stories alone, which is one small part of it, there are years worth here. And these days, most of this vast collection is available online. After a big digitisation project in recent years, most of it is even searchable. You want to find an Irish folk story about anything? Just go to ducas.ie and type it in. If it's there, you'll find it, and it's quite likely you'll stumble across a story that is not well known, maybe even hasn't been told in years. I've got lost on there for many hours myself. I've put a link to a few stories that I found and enjoyed on the website page for this episode if you want to check that out. But otherwise, dive right in. Find folklore about lime burning or nail making, about Irish mythology, about elf shot, about how to cure warts or whooping cough, 
about Irish secret societies, water horses, giants, find out about how people celebrated the Feast of St Martin or Shrovetide in all the counties of Ireland. Discover things on shipwrecks or plagues and epidemics or fires. Yes, and I am just reading categories from the website here. I honestly can't recommend it enough. I could tell stories from that website alone for a very long time. I won't do that, but if you are interested, there's a very good quality podcast run by the people who work there. I really recommend it. It's called Blarney Belladish or Folklore Fragments, and I will drop a link on the website, and I really suggest you go check it out. It's very well presented by highly knowledgeable people, and it also has some audio recordings from the archives. Absolutely brilliant. There is so much to say on this Folklore Commission, the shining light of Folklore Collection, and I think I'll probably come back to it, just as I'll probably come back to the ASC. Maybe I'll have a longer story that covers a whole episode. But for now, that's your lot. I hope you've enjoyed these couple of episodes. Just a couple of housekeeping bits before I go. Firstly, just to let you know that this month I hit two milestones with the podcast after these few years of very variable release schedules. I've now had over a quarter of a million listens and written scripts, including Patreon episodes, totalling half a million words. If I thought there was a market for a book, I would write it. Maybe I should have done that instead. Anyway, having produced a lot of episodes this year, comparatively, I know not many for lots of podcasts, I'm taking a bit of a break from the podcast for a short while as I go on holiday and settle into a new job. So there'll be no episode in July, The next episode will be out sometime in August, probably towards the end of August. I don't actually know what it's going to be on yet, but I feel like there's been a distinct lack of maritime themes for a podcast that looks at a series of islands, and that gives me a lot of scope, so let's just go with that. You'll have to wait and see. S-E-A? Never mind. During that time off, I am probably going to spend a bit more time on TikTok, though. I'm finding creating videos on there is working for me currently. It feels like a good way to compress my thoughts on some stories and topics of folklore into a much more compact format than this rather long-form waffling podcast. Follow me on there if you think you'll find that interesting, though it's certainly hit and miss at the moment and I know not every video is a winner. Finally, I should give some thanks. I'd really like to thank my patrons, specifically I mentioned to Tom who signed up since last episode. The support of patrons has been a massive encouragement for me. There are now seven members episodes, you can listen to them all if you sign up, and you'll only ever get charged when I do a new one. I'd also like to thank everyone who's left a review, which have, once again, been very kind. And I'd also like to thank everyone who's just listening. Having hit those milestones and reflecting a bit, I'm kind of surprised to find I'm still doing this podcast and enjoying it, and that I do is very much down to the support that everyone has shown me. So thanks for that. I hope you've enjoyed this dive into Irish fairies, and you'll be hearing from me with more tales in the not-too-distant future. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.